Good morning, everyone. Did you sleep well? Yeah? Did you enjoy morning exercises? Man, you guys were like really intense. You're, you're in much better shape than I am. I was very impressed this morning. Um, my name is Rona, and I'm the campus director of Emmaus at Seoul National University. <laughs> As you guys know, we're at Yonsei Iwa at um, SNU at KU, and there's a lot of other or, um, universities that some of you come from as well. But I get to hang out at uh, Seoul Day, and I love it there. It's a very pretty, very mountainous campus. Um, and this morning, I just wanted to share with you, before Pastor Aaron comes up and preaches, I'm going to share with you my story. And as you guys have been, um, as you guys have been in small group and getting to know some of your small group members and your small group leader, I think some of you have been opening up and, and just getting to know one another and sharing parts of your story. And um, <coughs> thank you, Tina. Um, and you know, the Emmaus staff and Pastor Aaron, the reason why we share our testimonies, the reason why we share our stories is because we'll never expect you guys to get vulnerable and open up to us without us doing that first, without, without us showing you that we have been there, that we've walked certain roads, and that God is, is the one who set us free. He's the one that called us here today. He's the one that changed us, and he's, still, he's the one that's still transforming and setting us free, even today, and we're all walking on this road. I'm, I'm wearing um, really high socks with these shoes, <laughs> and it looks kind of awkward, so don't look at my, don't look at my feet, okay? Just look at my face. Look at my face. Um, anyway, so <laughs> I just drew more attention to them. Anyway, um, they're really warm because they're wool socks, so it's a little bit cold in here. Um, anyway, so if some of you guys have spent a little time with me, um, you know parts of my story. And as you know, I, um, I grew up in Arkansas, in the countryside, to my Korean mom and my American dad. And from the very beginning of their relationship, their marriage was marked by strife, was marked by um, basically... You know, whenever sin entered the world, the enemy began to corrupt all the good things that God gave us. He created us for intimacy, for love, for oneness, for that kind of um, uncorrupted, pure love with him and with others, right? To be connected relationally to him and to one another. But then what happened when sin entered the world is everything began to be fragmented. And, and the enemy began to corrupt everything good that God had set in place. And so in my family, it was a perfect manifestation of that. Um, my, my dad had been married twice before my mom, and he was an alcoholic. And my mom first began to see him because she wanted to help him. But soon they had children, they got married, and from the beginning my dad was, um, was fighting alcoholism. But when he was drunk, he would have just fits of rage. So he would come home and just be yelling and throwing and destroying everything in his path. And then my mom was um, always just taking the brunt of it. And um, she, she stayed with him for 17 years. And my dad, for all 17 years, was committing adultery on her, was physically abusive, was alcoholic. All of this stuff was happening. And the reason she stayed with him was because he said, if you divorce me, um, I'm going to take the kids and you'll never see them again. And so um, that's what kind of life was like. And I remember my earliest memories are all of just being afraid. Like, I remember one day I had stayed home from school. It was, I think it was kindergarten because um, I was really little. 
and um, my dad, he had to stay home from work because I had to stay home from school. And I remember he was sleeping in the other room, but I started to feel a little bit better. And so I put on my favorite pink dress. It, it was like a pink dress that had poofy shoulders. And I, I, like, I took all my family pictures in this pink dress, the same one, because I thought it was so pretty and I looked like a princess. But um, I look at it now and it's like atrocious. It's like really ugly. But I, was, I put on my favorite pink dress and I was twirling around in it. And I was just singing and laughing and playing. And then all of a sudden my dad came storming into my room and he just started cussing me out. And I was probably five. And he just said, what the F are you doing? What are you thinking? Why are you making all this noise? And he just started to yell at me. And I didn't know, all I knew in that moment was fear. All I knew in that moment was I have made a really, really big mistake. I don't know what I did. I don't know how I did it. I don't know what's going on, but I know that I'm not pleasing to my dad. I know that something about me, something about what I've done is wrong. And soon the enemy began to twist all those interactions I had with my father. And he began, the enemy began to tell me that it's not a thing that you're doing wrong, but who you are as a person is wrong. And there's nothing about you that could ever be worth being loved or of value. And no matter what anyone ever told me, I always believed that lie, right? And I always thought to earn love from my dad, I have to be perfect. To get love and to get that kind of relationship with my dad, I have to, I have to figure it all, all out. I have to be clean. I have to be perfect, right? Because he doesn't just love me as I am. And I knew father means fear. Father means things are being thrown around. People are getting hurt. Father, if my dad is there, I don't want to be in the same room, right? I would come home with my brother after playing and just, uh, I remember one moment, my dad, um, he was just holding my mom up by her hair. And we walked into the kitchen and my brother and I looked at each other and we're like, stop, stop, stop. And I think I was in third grade and he was in fifth grade. And, um, and, and my mom said, you know, with tears, like, call the police, call the police, call the police. She was screaming. And then my brother and I, we were running towards the phone. But my dad said, if you touch the phone, you're next. And in that moment, I remember just thinking, I don't know what to do, you know? Like, I have to call the police to help my mom, but I'm so afraid. Like, what if he does something to me? What if he does something to my brother? What if he gets even more mad? And I remember I just froze in that moment, and my mom's eyes looking at me. And I just remember thinking, like, what kind of daughter am I, you know? What kind of daughter am I that I could do this to my mom? And all of this stuff started happening, and I began to, I began to, the way I began to see myself and the world all began to get corrupted. It all began to get twisted. And the enemy began to um, create a filter in my mind so that everything I began to see and perceive in the world, my interactions with people, it would all go through that filter, right? And those same lies, you are a mistake. You're not worthy of being loved by the Father. You have to work, work, work. Fear, all of that stuff, fear of, of people, fear of rejection, it all began to be the world I knew. And no matter how hard I tried to change myself or recreate myself or find my path, I tried so many things, guys, I could never break that. I remember when I went into junior high, I joined cheerleading. And I come from a very small town. If you guys ever saw Friday Night Lights, it's like a big football movie and everyone's like crazy about football. That's my town. So we're all like all about football and it's just, it's a mess. And then 
So I joined cheerleading, and with that, I began to smoke weed, I began to party, I began to um, be promiscuous with guys, and everything about me externally began to change. I started to wear a lot of makeup, a lot of skimpy clothing, Um, I began to be really loud, I was very introverted and shy because of all the abuse, I was afraid of people, and then I all of a sudden just thought, man, if if I act really ditzy, and I'm loud and bubbly, people really like me. Oh my gosh, so I'm gonna act like that all the time, okay? And I remember um, I remember in classes, my best friend since fifth grade, he's a um, big nerd, and I was a big nerd with him, and he would just, I would, my, he, my teacher would ask me like, Rona, what's the answer to this question? I'm like, I don't know, and I would just try to act stupid all the time because I thought, oh, this is what people like, right? This is what people like. So I'm gonna dress this way because people like it. I'm gonna cake on the makeup because people like it. I'm gonna um, act stupid and ditzy because that's what people like. They like this, so I'm gonna change everything about myself because people like it. And it's all about getting people to love me and like me because who I am as a person, first, I don't even know who that is. Second, from the beginning, I've seen that it's not worth being loved. So I have to do something to myself to earn that love from people. And so, Um, I just began to get into all sorts of of crazy um, situations with people. I began to make a lot of decisions that that weren't the best for me or others. I began to hurt myself and others a lot. And then um, nothing really changed, though, because on the outside, it looked like I was doing really, really well. But on the inside, I was still dying. I was still dying for something to tell me who I was, for someone to tell me my worth and my value, who I am, and and what this whole life thing is all about. And I grew up in church, but I couldn't find it there. I grew up in church, sitting in a pew, but all I remember thinking was, if everyone here is as perfect as they act, then I have nothing in common with them. If everyone here really has that plastered smile on and everyone's like, how are you? I'm doing well, Bob. How are you? Let's all go eat at the church picnic together. And, and if everyone's like that, I cannot relate to these people and their God can't be my God because I know what's in my life. I know what's in my heart. And if God is only their God and, and they have to be perfect people like that with nothing going on, I don't fit here. I don't fit here. And this God must not be as real as, as um, the Bible says he is. And if he is real, why in this Bible does it tell me that, that he changes lives and that signs and wonders break out and that fire falls from heaven? But in my church, everything's just so fake and so routine and so dead. Why do I come more alive at a party than I do in the presence of God if he is really the creator of the universe, the one who spoke life into existence? And so I thought, man, I can't find it in religion, that's for sure. And I was searching and searching for something, for something to make sense. And um, I remember as high school progressed, things continually got worse. Um, My dad and my mom, their relationship got even worse. My father was, he was like pretty much living with another woman. He had bought some property in Hawaii. and, And like, so financial aid from him wasn't really coming in. So we were pretty much raised by a single parent. And then I, began, I started working when I was in eighth grade, started providing for myself. I worked first illegally. I was 13 or 14. I worked at a Chinese restaurant at, as a dishwasher. And the, the woman who owned the Chinese restaurant was named May, and she's Vietnamese, okay? 
And she, um, because I was illegal, she would pay me cash under the table. That's how we did it in Arkansas, okay? It was the only Chinese restaurant in my town. And then after that, I, I worked as um, a pizza girl. I made pizzas. After that, I worked at a wilderness resort as a bus girl and then a hostess and then a bartender and then a server. And I, I've been working since I was 14. And when I started to work, my parents stopped providing for me. They gave me a place to stay. They gave me food. But then in terms of my toiletries, my school fees, my trips, my clothing, everything. When I was 14 years old, I started to pay for everything. So I started to work a lot. I started to go to school. I, I, I was doing everything. I was a cheerleader. I was excelling in every area of my life. And I, I found, man, even if my parents did a horrible job of providing for me, even if none of it... Um, makes sense. Even if I have to come home to this mess, I can take care of myself. Like I've got it all together. I can work hard. I'm smart. I, I can provide for myself. I'm strong. No one else is going to take care of me. I've got to take care of myself. And then, um, as, as time progressed, my senior year, my mom became very ill and, um, she went to doctor after doctor after doctor and no one could find anything wrong with her until finally one doctor, um, did a CAT scan, and he found a brain aneurysm on the verge of rupturing. And if you guys know anything about aneurysms, they, most people don't have symptoms, and the, the moment they rupture is the moment you die. Like, it's, it's like an unknown thing until you, you pass away, and then the doctors are like, it's from a brain aneurysm, right? And so they found this brain aneurysm on the verge of rupturing, like any moment. So we were rushed into the ER. She had brain surgery, and they said she has 60% chance of survival. And even if she does, the physical therapy, the process of, of going back to normal life is very difficult. And then um, as, we, as she got her surgery and she came out of it, um, what began to happen was we didn't have enough money. My dad wasn't supporting us. My mom had been out of work for about a year because she wasn't feeling good. And so we couldn't afford our house, and so we became homeless. And my father owned a house in the same um, town that I lived in, but he had re recently gotten remarried to like this 21 year old woman. And she said, I don't feel comfortable with you helping your old family. And so basically he kicked us out on the street and my mom's poorest friends took us in to live with them in their three bedroom trailer, about two hours out on a dirt road. And so crazy things started happening because not only was this internal and external thing so distant in my life, I was so perfect on the outside, so strong and capable, but on the inside, I felt like I was dying and everything was meaningless and hopeless. But soon everything around me in my inner world began to crumble, but I still had to maintain some level of perfection at school, right? And so I would come home to a sick mother in excruciating pain. I would leave and go to work. I would go to school, I would be captain of my cheer squad, have it all together, have the boyfriends and the friends and whatever, and then um, I would just do it over and over and over again. And, and I remember one time people at my school were like, um, the one time I didn't have friends my senior year was because one of my best friends started gossiping about me. And she was um, telling all these people stuff about me and getting people to not talk to me. You guys know high school drama. And I, I remember just confronting her, like, what is your deal? Like, why are you saying all this stuff? And she's like, Rona, to be honest, I'm just so jealous of you. And I'm like, why? And she's like, Rona, you have the boyfriends, you have the looks, you have the grades. Everything is perfect in your life. Everything is perfect in your life. And I just wanted to ruin it because you have it so easy. And I was like, I just, I just walked home and I was like, I don't even have a house, you know? And like, I go home to a house that's like, you know, there's no, um, sometimes there's no running water. 
I, only one friend in my school knew about me being homeless because I had to take my laundry there and take a shower at her house every morning before school because we didn't have running water at my mom's friend's house, okay? Everything was so perfect, right? Because I had to maintain this level of perfection because I had been striving and striving and striving and striving to get it all together, right? Because I didn't feel like I, I could have love just being me. And then... I remember things like that continued until I went to college, and I got a little bit of distance from my family. I got a little bit of distance from um, that that mess. Um, but I remember that no matter how far away I got from my problems, because because they had become a part of who I was, the way I filtered the world, the way I thought about myself and the world and God, I carried them with me everywhere. And so what I found my first year of college was superficial relationships, me putting on masks again, me not feeling understood or knowing people in intimacy, me still searching for meaning and fun and life in all these other places. And then I remember I declared this major that required me to go study abroad. And then I came to Korea in spring 2008 as a sophomore, as an exchange student for one semester. And I walked into Yonsei because um, that's where my partnership was at my school. And at Yonsei, um, we had this exchange student orientation. Who here was at the Yonsei exchange student orientation at the start of the semester? Okay, I was sitting there too. Okay, I remember that it was very long and boring. And most of the presentations were like, hey, come to Mentors Club. We're going to drink a lot and have a good time, right? And then all of a sudden, this, this short um, Korean-American, he took the mic and he said, um, <laughs> he said, hey, hey, I have an organization too, and um, we're going to drink a lot of water. Come with us. And then, and then he said, it's a Christian fellowship for international students, for exchange students. And I was like, okay, I grew up in church, so I know at least Christians aren't too weird. So I'll just like, I'll hang out with them until I make some better friends, and then I will leave them, okay? And, um, and then I, I remember going to their large groups. I remember going to the retreat. And at my Emmaus retreat, it was about 30 people, 20, 30 people. It was very small in 2008. That's how big Emmaus was. We were at one campus, and it was 30 people. And um, Pastor Christian, who, is, who was the kansanim for me, the staff for me back then, he laid his hand on my head. And I had no experience at all with, with the Holy Spirit, with signs and wonders, with Holy Spirit breaking out. I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was it was very strange. And and he almost made it stranger because he, like, played this YouTube clip before he prayed for us. And it was, like, a bunch of people praying for people and then falling down. But then the, the soundtrack was, let the bodies hit the floor. Let the body. And I was like, is he, does he want this to happen to me? Because I don't want that to happen to me, you know. And so I remember I went to the front, and, and, I, and he, called, he called me up by name. And then he prayed for me. And I was just thinking, Lord, if you're really real, that better not happen to me. If you're really real, don't let that happen to me. I don't even care about, I don't even, I don't want any of that. I don't know. I, I was just, I was very unaware, you know, but I just thought, no. And um, I, I remember I went up though, and as soon as he laid his hand on me, I had a vision. And what I began to see was every, um, I didn't even know visions existed, okay? Or that if God was really real, but I had a vision, okay? And I, I began to see these pictures 
um, flashing before my eyes of every painful part of my life, every shame-filled part of my life, every time my dad cussed me out, every time he was hitting my mom and my brother, every time he was speaking over us, every, everything that had been done to me and everything I had done to others to cause pain, it was flashing before my eyes so graphically. And before that retreat, before that moment, I hadn't cried in like five years. Even when family members passed away, I remember um, I thought I was going to cry once in 10th grade. And then um, my friend was like, handing me a tissue and I was like, get away from me. I don't want you to see me in my weakness, right? I was so hard. I was so numb. I didn't even cry. I was so standoffish and hard to people. And, um, and... Yeah, so um, I hadn't cried. I hadn't felt a lot of that stuff because when, when a lot of stuff comes at you guys from the outside and you can't handle it, when a lot of deception is coming at you from the outside and you can't handle it, what happens is, just like me, and, and those two cells begin to fragment, the external and then the internal. I began to go inward. And the rona on the inside became further and further away from the rona on the outside. And what I said and I did really didn't reflect who I was on the inside. It was very different, very separate, because I had to hide and protect this internal life, right? I had to keep it safe. I couldn't let myself feel that pain. I couldn't let myself feel that abuse, that rejection, because I felt like I was going to die if it, I felt the rawness of it. So I had to just numb myself. And when I numb myself, I couldn't really feel real pain or real joy or real love. It was, I was numb to everything. And I remember when, when Pastor Christian laid his hand on me and I saw those things, it's like the filter and the numbness and that wall, it just lifted. And soon I saw it all and I felt it all for the first time. And I just started, I fell to my knees because the weight of it all was so heavy. And I just began to weep and weep and weep and grieve over the things that had happened to me and the things I had done to others. And soon suppressed memories even came up. I was um, about six or seven years old, and I had committed numerous sexual sins as a child. And I remember that when this happened, and I, I did this, I was so confused because I was like, man, what? why did this happen to me? What am I doing? And if, if God, if you're real, like how, if, if I commit such evil things, such dirty and shameful things when I'm such a little kid, does that just mean I'm dirty and shameful? Is that just, just solidifying all the things I had heard about from the enemy my whole life, that I was worthless, that I was dirty, that I was ugly? And this, this suppressed memory that came up, guys, um, I thought I was going to carry it forever. It was something so dirty and so shame-filled that it was like a part of my body. And no one could ever see all of me or that sin, right? And then soon... Um, as I began to cry about over those things and, and feel God's presence, it felt almost like God was taking a flashlight and just shining in all the parts of my heart. And he was shining there because there was things that I couldn't deal with on my own. There's things that I couldn't handle on my own. And God was shining his spirit into my heart because he wanted to set me free. And that's what happens when God pours his spirit out in us. Many things happen. One is that his light exposes all that pain, all that rejection, all those lies, all the things the enemy has been piling up upon us because God wants to set us free. And I remember sitting down with Pastor Christian later and, and confessing those sins, confessing those suppressed memories for the first time in my life. And the moment I said it out loud, I was set free. And he said, God has separated you as far as the east is from the west from your sin. And, and God saw the chains and the bondage that you were in, and he didn't want you to stay there. 
You know, the enemy tries to kill and to steal and to destroy in infancy what he cannot kill and steal and destroy in its fullness. And God, he created me for something amazing. He created me for something amazing, but the enemy didn't want me to get to that point. And if I would have just cowered back and said, I'm going to keep it in darkness, keep it back here, keep it hidden, keep myself in those chains, man, I would have been missing out. But at one moment, something shifted in my mind, and I said, maybe God is good. Maybe God is a good father. Maybe what he has for me is good, and maybe this Christian thing is real. I'm going to open up my heart really to it. I'm not just going to go through the motions and go to church and sit down and listen to the messages, but really, this God might really be the one that changes my life forever. And what I began to see that, that semester, I was only here for five months, but it changed my life. I was set on fire for God. I was set on fire for God, and all I began to think about, no one had to tell me, do your QT. No one had to tell me, go evangelize. No one had to tell me to be good and stay out of trouble, because I remember the moment I tasted God for who he really was, all I could think about was him, and all I wanted to do was please him, and all I wanted to do was know him more. And it's like that desire, that longing consumed me. And I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help. I didn't have to, oh my gosh, I need to evangelize because that's what the Christians do. It's like, it's just bubbling out of me because he's so good. How could I not tell other people about his goodness? He's so good. How could I not go to the church service? How could I not go to the prayer meeting? He's that good. He's that good. And I want more of him. And, and what, 20 years of counseling and sitting in front of psychologists and Xanax and, and self-help books and discipleship could not do god did in an instant with his fire with his love but it took me saying god you are good and you have good in store for me not evil and i think that when the enemy has come and planted these lies in us and hurt us and 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 we felt that rejection and we created those filters it's hard for us to trust and i'm still walking this out guys learning okay my earthly father and mother they didn't have what's best for me They didn't give me a good life. I've been providing myself since I was 14 to be able to step back and give God control and say, I give you control of my future. I don't know what it is, and I'm okay with that. I give you control of my finances, of my relationships, of every part of my life. It's hard for me. It's not easy because sometimes you get trapped in that old way of thinking, man, I got to look out for myself. Man, no one else is looking out for me. I have to take care of myself, especially if you're good at it. It's hard to give up control, right? And I was so good at it. I've been doing it for a long time. And then, but God began to show me that he loved me too much to let me stay like that. He loves me too much to let me stay as an orphan. He adopted me into his family, and he said, I am your father. And even if your mother and father abandon you, I will never forsake you. I'm not going to tell you what's up ahead. I'm not going to give you the how and the why and the when because I want you to learn to trust me. All I'm going to do, though, is show you how good I am. And that's going to be more than enough. But, guys, what God has for you, you have to know that, that it is his goodness. It is his faithfulness. Whatever it is, even if it's scary sometimes, it is good because he is good and he is a loving and good father. And what I'm doing right now, I would have never chosen for myself. I have... No, I had no intentions of doing 
full-time ministry or college ministry. When I was set on fire by God, my heart burned for the 1040 window, unreached people groups, and academia. I wanted to go to school and never come out, right? I never said, I love college students so much. Let me stop working and, and like, do ministry with them. I just thought, whatever, you know, college students, okay. I love them as much as every other segment of society. But now, when I, like, when I, like, honestly, when I think about you guys, I can't help but start crying, you know? And, like, and I'm just, like, God, your love for these students is so crazy. And, and the kind of joy and the depths of his love that I've gotten to personally receive and be a firsthand account of what I've gotten to see him do in college students' lives, it's insane. But if I would have taken control and if I would have said, God, I cannot open my heart, I can't trust you, I can't believe that you're a good father, I would have missed out on so much of his goodness. So much of his goodness. God is a good father to us, and he is laying before us a banqueting feast, and he's saying, you're my son, and you're my daughter, and I want you to feast with me. You know, in Psalm 23, it says that he prepares a feast for us in the presence of our enemies. Every voice of rejection, every voice of abuse, everything that's been done to you, everything that tried to keep you chained and in darkness, all those fears and doubts, in the presence of all of that, God has prepared a feast, and he said, you are my son and my daughter. You can eat and feast with me and, and just like all those other things, just, just let it wash away in the background. It doesn't even matter anymore. You're with me now. You're with me now and I have good for you. And so that is my story. And um, I just wanted to share it with you guys because I was sitting in your chair five years ago. <laughs> it's a long time ago now uh, as a 20-year-old and I knew exactly how some of you are feeling. And it's so easy to let doubt and fear creep in. But what I'm here to tell you is that God is real and that he is good and that he longs to father us.